Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the podcast, we revisit these ideas in new and different ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here expecting to discuss. I'm very happy to be here today with Lisa Jesse Peterson. She's an actress, poet, playwright, and arts educator who's been working with adolescent boys and girls incarcerated on Rikers Island for the past 18 years. Her fierce, funny, powerfully written new book is All Day, a year of love and survival teaching incarcerated kids at Rikers Island. The loving and specific portraits she paints of her students highlight the cruelty of the systems, economic, school, police, prison, that fails so many young black men, landing them and keeping them in prison. Welcome to Think Again, Lisa. Thank you. I guess I want to start with an overview. Like this is, I mean, you've been working for many years uh, with incarcerated youth, but w- this wasn't exactly the first year, but it's a while ago that this yeah, book takes place. Absolutely. Like how far back are we going? So the book, well, the, the timeline for this specific portion of my journey was from 2008 to 2009. Right. I originally started working at Rikers Island in 1997 or 1998. So right. I had been been working in different capacities, and but this particular year was the first time that I was working as a full-time school teacher right. uh, teaching GED. And that was a and that was a really I mean what was interesting and I loved how honest um, and clear you were about this was that this was a very ambivalent kind of career moment for you, right? I mean, like on the one hand, you had done certainly some professional acting. I know Deaf Poetry Jam was that before that. Yeah. Um, so you had been doing <clears throat> what is sometimes called slam poetry, but I always think should be called stand-up poetry or whatever, because it's not always a fight, you know, but but doing live poetry and you, you had all that going on. And then this was you coming to grips with a bunch of things at once, right? Economic realities, but also the desire to help. And can you talk a little bit about all that yeah. stew? Like, yeah, it was, it was actually literally economically driven. I, I mean, my art wasn't supporting me. Right. <laughs> you know, I live in New York City, uh, live in Brooklyn, and the rents are just crazy. And I didn't have enough money to support myself as a teaching artist. And it was summertime, and so teaching artist gigs in the summer are really, really scarce because there's no school. Right. Um, so it, it literally was not a, a thing where, I, oh, I wanted to go and teach incarcerated boys and help. It, it, it was strictly, I need some income. Um, I just started shaking trees, rolling dice, calling people I right. knew. And I reached out to the principal at Rikers Island who knew me from back in 1998 when he was the assistant principal when I was a teaching artist. Right. So I was doing poetry workshops. And I just asked him, I said, hey, listen, I'm you know, interested in doing some poetry workshops. I'm available if you want me to do something for the summer. I'm still thinking teaching artists. Right. And he was like, well, Which was I- a nice sort of like floating in and floating out gig. Exactly. You describe it as being like the fairy godmother kind of of art. You know, you come in, exactly. everyone's happy, you're out of there. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so he was like, well, funny you should call. I need somebody um, to cover for the rest of the summer until the end of the um, you know, school semester for about three weeks because we have a teacher who's out. And I was like, oh, great. That's steady work. It's easy. End of the summer. You know, end of the school year. Right. I can handle that. 
and so I took the gig. And then it, and then it turned into a, a full year yeah. after then, that. Yeah, then he asked me to that come back for the semester awful. in September. And you and you yeah, I love the way you're just you describe like punching the clock for the first time and how that's like basically totally antithetical to your nature as an artist and here I am like a working stiff getting up at four thirty in the morning and dealing with all this like and I'm in prison in a sense, right? Exactly. But like real quick that changes for you. I mean you're obviously a person who can't be in a place and just kind of like punching the clock as it were. So you rapidly adjusted and put yourself fully into this. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I never adjusted to the schedule. That was always gruesome. I mean, getting up right, right. and getting to the train station was was hell. But once I got on the island, it was, you know, I kind of kicked in to, all right, I'm here for the kids. Right. And so then I was just caught up with the kids and the teaching and, you know, making sure that, you know, I was able to reach them and you know, inspire them. So that's what kept me going was their energy and, you know, the need to want to help them, the need to want to inspire them, the need to want to teach them, the need to want to lift them up. Right. But that morning, getting up, I, I didn't get up saying, oh, great, I'm going to, you know, work to, you know, teach the boys. And it was like, oh, my God, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> you were coming from Brooklyn, right? Yeah, it so, was, it yeah, was like an hour bit, and a half, a maybe a almost two hour commute. Oh my God. Yeah. Each way. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Yeah, so teaching them and connecting that with them, and I want to get more specific in a second because the <laughs> wonderful thing about your book, one of the wonderful things, is that you're incredibly specific about the kids. Like, you know, we have a tendency to kind of look at you know, the the media has a tendency to be like, incarcerated youth, yada, 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 statistic, statistic, but like, you get real specific and they come to life, you know, yeah. each one of them. But I, I, I wanted I want to say like, you're there and you're and you're doing this for them and, and you're driven by the like, you know, once you're there by the need to like, to, to really help, but it's a fight, yeah? I mean, it's like every day a real like, it's not just all like, la, 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 here I come, here's the beauty and the poetry, right? Right, It was no. a struggle, Yeah. as you say in the title. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a struggle working with teenagers, adolescents, right. whether they're in jail, out of jail, black, white, Asian, <laughs> you know, Latino. I mean, just adolescents, they're, they're crazy across the board. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, yeah, and yeah. I mean, and you talk to any, you know, high school teacher, they'll tell you, it doesn't matter where you are, Adolescence is a temporary, you know, phase of insanity. Yeah, as you point out in the book, the medial frontal cortex isn't quite fully online until you're like 20, 25, something exactly, like that. Exactly, yep. So your your impulse control is like, you know, yeah. you got lots of energy. Hormones are raging. Lots of plans, yep. but no impu impulse control. Exactly, yeah, right? yep. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to share some like personal experience here and see where we go with that because I taught for three years and it was a similar thing. Like, I needed to make a living but I cared about kids and I wanted to do, make a difference, whatever. But I, I was, it was seventh grade for basically two years, mostly seventh grade, some sixth grade. And the kids were coming from neighborhoods where they, they lacked a lot of support, they lacked a lot of economic resources and things were bouncy. And like, I gotta say, like, I did my best and I, you know, I was coming from the arts and I, I was putting on deaf poetry jam for them to watch and that was actually one of the best semesters we had like working on poetry and live poetry that way but a lot of times like coming in as I was from my own background and like having abs 
like being confronted with a situation where so much more structure and maybe struggle, structure was demanded and struggle was present. Mm. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to be honest and say, I think they probably ate me alive more or less. They made you earn your stripes. I think, I mean, you, you talk about, you know, so you talk about this thing in the book where, you know, and my mother used to be a teacher and she put it as like, you don't smile before Christmas, right? And, in, in, and you, you talk about that a little bit, like the need to present a strong front. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about like what that was like? Was that natural to you coming in and just doing that? Yeah, it was natural because, you know, I had worked with this population before and I'm a woman and they're adolescent boys. Right. So there's always going to be that that challenge. There's always going to be that, you know, regular, normal, adolescent sexual undertones, you know? Uh-huh, sure. So I knew that as a woman, I had to walk with a certain, you know, gait. I had to have a, a specific demeanor that was very kind of militaristic. Right. You know, and revolutionary to ward off you know, any of those advances. That is natural in any high school. So it wasn't that they're in prison, but just, you know, boys. You also say, though, that boys that age and in that population, like, can smell fake and phony, like, mm -hmm. a mile away. Yep. So I wonder, like, how those two things fit together, because it's not, I'm not saying it's fake, but you're putting on a front, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, because, you know, it's kind of not a front, because that's how I walk through the world. I you, mean, that's how I walk through New York City, you know? Right. You, you know, there's, there's a certain... Um, you know, sure. rhinoceros kind of skin that any woman has right, to develop right, 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 right. just to get from the door to the subway into the, you know, location. Fair so, enough, yeah. yeah, so it's kind of, it's not fake. It's how I walk through New York City. Yeah, I mean, I bring that up because, like, for, for me, like, that's how I was coming into this environment where I'm like, on the one hand, I want to be like, I'm going to share the love of Shakespeare with you. And then... And then to be honest in that way is, was to be perceived as weak. And that made me very, very uncomfortable because I didn't want to pretend to be a hard ass, you know? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a balancing act. <laughs> yeah. It is, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about like kind of the negotiation of power in prison because I think like that's an interesting part of the book as well. Like the way these, these guys are having to deal, you know, with each other with the CEOs and with the like judges and so on and like how that how that relates to education and trying to actually like what you're trying to do in the classroom you know like the power struggles that they're in all the time and then like how you can teach within that yeah well well that that's the challenge you know working in that environment because the kids are navigating just layers of trauma layers of depression layers of oppression and so I had to be constantly cognizant of that. Right. You know, that's why I gave them the space to, if they needed to sit in the back and put their head down, they could do that. You know what I mean? Right. Or if, you know, I needed to pull one guy up and have him sit in my seat and just have a little one-on-one -on -one and just kind of have a pep talk and just say like a heart-to-heart, -heart, that was something that, you know, I was always open to doing. And also knowing that sometimes if I'm doing let's say a social studies lesson and I see a guy is brooding, I might just give him a piece of paper and I say, just write in your journal. Right. You know, like... And then and it turns out, like, he's got a exactly, lot to say right now. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's just really just having, you know, my spidey senses right. on alert, right. you know, so to speak. <laughs> and, like, yeah, and, and that kind of points at this other thing, which is this tension between what you have to do 
first of all, like success, the way success is measured in a classroom like that is very different from what the Department of Education wants to necessarily think of as success. Right, because right? they want measured outcomes. Right? Yeah. They want numbers. And so for me, that's not, that doesn't qualify as success. Right. Um, it just means that somebody knows how to memorize and regurgitate information. For me, success is somebody who comes in and they're not participating and now they're participating or they're smiling or they're talking to other students. To me, that is success. There's a breakthrough because that signals that there's some development happening. Right. Or, and there's a relationship, and, you know, and a relationship that you build with the students exactly. over time. Including, um, you know, one of the one of the more touching relationships in the book is with Shatik, right? Oh my God. Who's like annoying <laughs> the heck out of you from the moment you walk in. But like, I mean, I don't know if love is the right word, but there's kind of love there. Yeah. By the end. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's, <laughs> Shatik. Oh, I, I love Shatik. Shatik. You know, there's and any teacher will tell you there's always that one student. Right who you wake up and they're the first thing on your mind before you even step out of bed mm -hmm. because you know you gotta deal with them and you know they're gonna give you hell. But that's that student that makes you earn your teacher stripes. For me it was this kid, Eddie Jean-Jacques, this little Is he like, how you remember the name? You never forget the name. Eddie, if you're <laughs> out there, oh, he was very hyperverbal, very smart and had a litany of reasons why all of this was just bullshit, you know? Right. Yeah, and he haunts me to this day. Because, <laughs> I, I, um, I, I wanted to do a little, um, ask if you could read a little bit aloud from sure. this and as a springboard to something else I want to talk about uh, before we get to the surprise conversations. And I should say that, you know, Lisa's a poet, so that actually, that makes this book, you know, a hundred times more enjoyable to read, I think. Oh, awesome. You know? Yeah. I want the boys to be exposed to bold artists and intellectuals who are unafraid to speak about the rich legacy of black culture in a creative, informative way. I believe it can stir the dormant warrior inside them and activate their highest potential for enlightenment. Exposure to righteous information and creative inspiration can wake a sleeping giant when you least expect it. But our children are fed so much poison in the music that when they hear something healthy and uplifting, they think it's bad, corny, and irrelevant. Even popular mainstream artists trying to make a difference are quickly drowned out by the overwhelming loud pollution of toxic ignorance being peddled and marketed for profit. Poisoning the music is like drinking contaminated water. It's by design. Keep the masses dumbed down in order to keep them easily controlled and operating on the lowest frequency possible. No critical thinking, no positive inspiration, no forward movement. Reward the lowest of who we are and celebrate mediocrity, denigration, destruction, and murder. Package it and sell it to our children. Play it all day on rotation like a mantra of death and watch them imitate the diamond-studded Stacks of money flashing, material-driven, gun-toting, misogynistic, Pied Piper minstrels. Our babies are suffocating from false images and dying from layers of lies. America has been feeding off of and been propped up by black folks for 500 years. Our blood is in the soil. Slavery is the rotten root, foundation and engine of America. 
Prison is the remix, and music is one tool to fuel it. Infect the psyche of our children with poison on a funky beat until it becomes a meditation and mantra. It's like a death sentence for our future that we dance to. I believe in certain conspiracies. These are strange and dangerous times. I wanna I wanna dig into to this just a little bit. Like I saw the documentary thirteen that you were in and I see like the prison industrial complex and I see how the drug laws and how the you know private prison system specifically targets and profits from black boys and men. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When it comes to like conspiracy theories, I, I wanna I wanna dig into the the music one because it's like I feel like this stuff is so complicated to separate out like it seems to me like like what's going on with rap music is like okay obviously there are corporations profiting off of some of the more now I also really like make a division between different kinds of hip-hop I love most deaf I love tribe called quest I'm not a big fan of corporate hip-hop that's fueling that might be fueling gang violence but I guess, like, I, I see how that's the corporations are profiting from that, but it's hard for me to see that as specifically a conspiracy against young black men. And likewise, the education system. I see how the education system can fail young black men, but it's hard for me to see the education system as specifically targeting young black men in order to end them up in the prison industrial complex. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, which I think you're saying in the book. Yeah, so, so, yeah. so, so, so with hip hop, um, and, yeah, and, 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 because it's a lot to, to unpack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm definitely a hip hop baby. I was born and raised on hip hop, love hip hop. And so I remember when hip hop had like a myriad of voices right. that you could hear and dance to and listen. And, and even when, you know, quote unquote, gangster rap came on the scene, you still had the Tribe Called Quest, you had the Most Death, you had the Commons, you had the Talib Qualis. There was, there was like this smorgasbord because rap is a reflection and is a mirror of us as, you know, black people, um, black and Latino people. And so there's no one monolithic style right. that will that is indicative of who we are but i think what happened is that when you know for a while hip hop was kind of left alone like we weren't being fucked with right because we weren't seen as a threat it was underground it was underground whatever. it wasn't a threat it was just some you know boogaloo music and you know but it was really beginning to wake the sleeping giants. You know, you had, you know, young kids who were now becoming lyricists and it was, you know, uh, you had kids who were uh, interested in language and, and metaphor and, you know, who could, you know, pull up the most obscure references. So it was really this explosion of, of intellect um, on a grassroots, you know, urban street corner level, right? So you right. had all these like street prophets and geniuses and, and, you know, scholars that were artists as well. And then you have the corporate entities kind of caught on like, oh, wow, this is a way to make money. And what I see as a conspiracy is that, you know, you still have a wide range of hip hop artists who are out there, but the gatekeepers are only allowing access to the mainstream or to the masses. So 
you're not hearing the most deaf on the radio. Right. You're not hearing, you know, the smorgasbord of our voices. You're only hearing the one voice that is denigrating our people, that is denigrating our women, that is talking about murder and constant, constant destruction of who we are, of our, of our spirit. And I see our children ingesting it. So there isn't this, you know, right. democracy of access. Right. So you've got these gatekeepers saying, no, we don't want, you know, and, and people who are saying, oh, that, that's not relevant. You know, we, we don't want to talk about, uh, even like, um, oh, what's his name? Lupe Fiasco. I remember he did this song called Bitch Bad, which was really an indictment on the minstrelsy of mm. hip hop. Mm. And he got so much flack from, you know, what I call them, you know, black spurts, you know, these white men who are writing, <laughs> like, who are writing, you know, these articles um, on, you know, what's relevant and what's not relevant in black culture and hip hop and saying that, oh, he's not relevant and who is he to say, you know, that, you know, calling a woman bitch is bad. I'm like, whoa, this is so deep. That's so just, it was very, yeah, very yeah, interesting. Because yeah. there's know? like a, there's a liberal, there's kind of a, like a liberal white twist, but maybe it, maybe you also get this backlash in the dialogue between white black spurts and people in the black community on like cuz when you have white people saying this is the good hip hop and this is the bad hip like this hip hop is about the drugs and the violence and the guns and who are you to sit there and tell us what's okay like Listen, I'm an artist, so all, you know, so, like, so, so all narratives you know. are valid. Yeah. To me, as an artist, all narratives yeah, yeah. are valid. My issue is the narratives that are getting access, the narratives that are getting greenlit, right, the right. narratives that are getting produced. And normalized so, and like, you know. And made, on, yeah. on radio for our children right, to right. digest on a daily constant basis. I see the effects of it. Yeah. And so yeah, it is it mm -hmm. is a conspiracy. Like like education. Like, you know, I always tell, you know, my kids, I would say, you know, spell history. H I S T O R Y. Okay. What are the first three letters? H I S. So whose story? His story. His story. Oh, his story. Right. His story. Mm -hmm. That's not your story. That's not our story. I mean, just I mean, something as basic as like Christopher Columbus, that there's still a holiday for him, that, you know, he's still being celebrated as someone who discovered America. And this is being put in in history books, right? right? I grew up on that lie, you know, and so many of us grew up on that lie. So I said, so think about the mentality of someone who will go to great lengths to put a lie in a textbook, make you memorize it and think it's the truth and test you on it. And if you answer it truthfully, then you could fail because right. you haven't answered it correctly. I said, that's just one lie. I said, so who we are as a people, who we are, you know, in terms of our contribution to civilization, to the society, to this planet has totally been erased. I said, do you think that's by accident? Why is that being kept out? Why, why do I have to be in college? And I went to Georgetown University, mm. and I had to get on a bus, and I had to go to Howard University to get anything that remotely included my history and a reflection of me. So, and this is on a college level. So, right. So there is a conspiracy. Yeah, you know, okay. I mean, you know, I, and I say this, I, you know, in the book, like, you know, black people are the only people that I can think of who allow the sons and daughters of our former slave masters and oppressors to educate us. Do you think, you know, so do you think there's a, a drive to want to level the playing field? Because now we're talking about, uh-oh, we're talking about talking about white supremacy. Uh-oh, now we're talking about white privilege. Uh-oh, now we're talking about the economy right. and, and the, the diabolical, just blood 
thirsty system, the sickness, and how it has traumatized black people and how it's even traumatized white people. And they're not even aware because they're, they're on autopilot and we've kind of ingested the self-hatred too. So yeah, yeah like these yeah, yeah. history books have to be rewritten. We have to be retaught. The uncomfortable conversation has to be had. The elephant in the room, slavery, white supremacy has to be unpacked. And it's going to make people uncomfortable, which gets me back to hip hop. So now you have artists who are maybe talking about uncomfortable things or things that are, you know, not about destruction, but maybe talking about the power structure. Now, if you're somebody, white person who loves hip hop, you may not be able to find yourself inside of that. Sure. You may feel a little bit outside of that conversation. Yeah. You can't voyeur and watch that conversation because you may feel some type of way. You can watch, you know, two thugs killing each other and, you know, cooking up cocaine and, you know, you can have a, you know, a scar-faced voyeuristic, uh, you know, you know, experience. Right. But if now you're in, you know, a conversation that is talking about you and it's talking about your father and it's talking about your mother and how, you know, we need to flip the script on this racist, white supremacist society, now you feel indicted. Now you don't feel included. So I get why there's pushback and sure. not wanting to have that narrative be included with access. I get it. Right. Well, I mean, you know, it's not art's job to make everybody comfortable, right? And if some, you know, wisdom would be to take that in and try to understand what's going on there. You know what I mean? Like, and it may be that the music wasn't written for you or whatever, but if I'm a white kid in the suburbs, I'm listening to something that is indicting white people, you know, for, for the real history that has happened, then I think if I'm smart, over time, I try to process that, you know. Yeah, and so and so and so, I I think you know, white kids get it. Like you know, I remember like when Public Enemy came out, like they had a huge, and still do have a huge white following. So and I don't think it's the white kids. I think it's the the the, the power structures. I think it's the corporate structures right. that you know, they, like they they don't want to upset the apple cart. They don't want to you know, they don't want to get you know <laughs> too many radicalized young people, black and white. Right. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, anything that points in the direction of revolution is exactly. obviously a threat. I mean, you know, and you know, and and then this is not something we can resolve right now. But I always wonder, uh, you know, I always think about this stuff. Like, to what extent is some healthy, like genuinely integrated society? And I don't mean like everyone turning into like some hybrid. I mean people being themselves but being together and the curriculum reflecting the genuine positive white history that might be there and the real black history that's there as well you know like i'm a person who as a primarily like grounded in literature i freaking love shakespeare right i would die if shakespeare were thrown off the curriculum because somebody was like oh that's a dead white guy you know what i mean i think that would be a tragedy right. because that the, the the level of poetry and the level of English in that writing, there are very few things that come close. However, I would love to see more black literature included. I would love to see a balance. You know what I'm saying? So, so I don't think it's an either or. I yeah, think yeah. It, I think it's yeah, a yeah. yes and. You yeah, know, yeah. and the same with 
like Christopher Columbus. We're not. I'm not talking about erasing. Right, right, right. But let's but tell the truth right. about who he was and what he actually did. Right. Let's not exclude him and say, oh, he was bad. He did horrible things. So we don't want to talk about. It. No, we need to know the truth. Yeah. about him. We need to know the truth about the Moors and how they conquered Europe for over, I think it was 700 years. Like, hello, like there's such a, you know, an, a, a massive amount of history that is not included. And because if you think about, you know, education, I mean, it was really started out, it wasn't for the, you know, commoner. It was for, you know, it was like an elitist, yeah, yeah. you know, system. Right. You know, it was, it was an elitist institution for people who had money. And, I, you know, I think some of these hero narratives are also, they're about power, right? Like when a, when a group is, is like establishing its own nationhood, its own power or whatever, there's a tendency to heroize its present and past leaders, right? And I'm sure, like, like for example, it, it's, it would be really painful, difficult, and possibly counterproductive to get into whatever might be negative about Martin Luther King when educating children. You know, like, maybe the guy had a bad day, right? I don't know, you know? But, like, that is not something you necessarily want to be teaching right now when you're, when you're in a society that is so imbalanced. And, you know, it's really... I'm not saying Martin Luther King wasn't a hero. Don't get me wrong. But you know what I'm saying? Like, right. it's difficult to get real about the heroes when you're trying to, uh, and I and I and I think we, sh we, I think it's high time that 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 we certainly did with people like Christopher Columbus. But I'm just tracing kind of maybe why that, how that happens. You know what I mean? Like, well, because, don't you think there's probably glorification of black leadership for the sake of lifting up black no, youth? No, I, I, like, I, 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 well, I guess I, get, I don't I don't see the same comparison because I mean, if there was a black leader who committed atrocities. I'm not talking about infidelities, right? We're not talking about right, something right, that's right, not right, right, affecting right, 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 right. other groups of people. Right. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to compare Martin Luther King to Christopher Columbus. But I'm so just saying, get, you know, in terms of right like, if we're, if we're going to look yeah. at like, yeah. you know, the, the whole picture, like, okay, so if, you know, if Christopher Columbus, you know, was having affairs and let's say he might have been gay and, you right. know, all things that people might just clutch the pearls like, ooh, 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 right? Who gives yeah, a whatever. shit? Like, yeah, whatever. But, but we're talking about like what he did to nations of people who yeah, yeah, yeah. were already here. Like, right. It's just unfathomable how that can be overlooked <laughs> for decades. Good point, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah, whoa, yeah, whoa, yeah, wait yeah. a minute. And now we have Thanksgiving and we celebrate. It's like, whoa, let's really look at the pilgrims and what really happened because a whole nation, nations of people were eradicated. brutalized. Yeah, yeah, Eradicated, both directly and yeah. indirectly, both, you know, smallpox and... we're and, celebrating yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the terror. We're, we're celebrating terrorists. No, that's right. I think that's a good place to, to draw a, a, a temp, you know, a pencil line. <laughs> and then let's, let's no, like, I'm, I could go on like this all day, but I think let's, let's move on to the... Um, the surprise clips, all right? Oh, okay. The first one that we have appears to be on solitary confinement. The speaker is Marie Gottschalk. The solitary confinement, you're in a cell 22, 23 hours a day. I recently discovered in a number of states on the weekend, you're actually in the cell round the clock for the whole weekend. You 
don't come out for meals. You have a slot in the door where your meals are given to you. There's often uh, very little that's in your cell. Some states only allow you one book. Some allow uh, a bookshelf worth of things. Some states, no TV, no radio. Other states, all right. Many states restrict the number of visitors, uh, the lack of any kind of uh, human contact, even when you have those visits. You're typically allowed out for one hour a day of exercise, which some people say is kind of in a, a dog exercise yard because it's a kind of pen that's attached to the prison. If you want to do your exercise for an hour, that means you probably don't have time for uh, a telephone call or to, or to take a shower. Psychologists and other doctors who've studied this say that people decompose, they lose their mind. They begin, for example, if they've been so isolated for so long, then they're in human contact, suddenly there can be the stimulation of just a fly in the room and they'll be staring and looking at that fly and can't concentrate because they're overstimulated by that. In some solitary confinement, the lights are kept on all the time. A uh, number in the South don't have any air conditioning, so we've had a number of deaths in people in solitary and non-solitary because of the excessive heat. It's an um, unimaginable way of keeping people, and it's extraordinary. And when I tell people this, people think I'm making it up. And the fact that we have tens of thousands of people at any one moment who are, are in this existence. And we've had some people who have spent literally decades in this existence in the United States. What's your perspective on this? And like what, you know, you must, were any of those kids, the, the kids that were in your class were obviously not in solitary, but you well, must have Well, some heard. of them wound up in solitary. Okay. Yeah. Um, so when I was teaching, uh, that was in 2008, they still had what was called the Bing, B-I-N-G, which was uh, slang for the box or solitary confinement. So a kid could go to the box for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, 120 days, depending on the offense. Uh, recently, as of 2015, solitary confinement has been eliminated for adolescents and then recently for young adults. In New York? Or in, in New York City, yeah. Okay. So there's no more solitary confinement for, for adolescents and for young adults, 18 to 21. Yeah. But, I mean, this whole system just needs to not be reformed, but just needs to be abolished. We need to rethink punishment. I think more emphasis needs to be, more emphasis and more funding and, and more resources need to be put in place to help people not come to jail, in prison, right. you know, a more holistic approach, a more healthy approach, like what kind of, you know, people are dealing with traumas, people are dealing with all kinds of, you know, poverty is traumatic experience, right? So... Yeah, you talk about, you talk about crime in the book a lot of times uh, as you, this phrase, crimes against poverty, like yeah. people taking action out of their desperation yeah. and anger and... Yeah, to survive, to yeah, eat, yeah, to yeah, live, yeah. right? So... I think that we really need to look at a more healthier, uh, holistic approach to dealing with people who commit crimes uh, or, or commit, you know, antisocial behavior acts. Yeah, I mean, it's such a mess because, I mean, as you point out, kids living in poverty will find themselves 
in significantly more trouble often than like kid in the suburb who goes and vandal. I mean, I went to a high school. Okay, I went. Let's let, let, here's real talk. I went to a eighty-five percent, ninety percent white private school in Washington D.C. where lots of politicians' kids go, all boys school. The football team at that school, they on the weekends they would have keg parties. They would smash. They were smashing, you know, each other's cars. There was regular like gross examples of date date rape. I mean, date rape's not even the word. Like, I never went to these parties, but I would sit there on Monday in the senior room, and I would hear these guys talking about you know what happened over the week. Girl was drunk, whatever. You know, horrifying things. Mm. Sometimes they would get caught for them. Never more than a slap on the wrist. Nothing. And as you point out, like. Another kid, you know, black kid, <laughs> would find himself probably in jail, right? You know, at the same time, like until the system is reformed, if somebody murders somebody, they're going to put them somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. So then mm -hmm. where should the reform start, do you think? Like education? Is it because, is because the school system is so alienating that it doesn't offer a proper, like, harbor for kids who really need it, you know? Like, is that where to begin? I mean, I don't have the answers. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it, and and there's so many. It, there's not like a one bullet solution, but definitely education. Definitely, you know, resources in the community. There need to be after school programs. There, you know, there need to be job opportunities for parents so that they, you know, have a way to support their children. I think that there also needs to be in place, you know, resources and organizations that support the men and women who are coming home from prison so that they can reacclimate into the community and be a part of the community and maybe be instrumental in counseling the young people so that they don't wind up where they just came from. Right. You know, um, right. so there's so many different ways that resources can be, you know, rerouted from Instead of making a prison bed, how about a community center? How about more counselors? How about more job opportunities? How about you know creating, like I said, a program for people returning home to be a, a resource in the community? Yeah, yeah. I mean, living in the America. We've got the money. It's just a matter of where the prioritizing where is the money going to. I couldn't agree more, but like living in the America that I live in and that I grew up in, like I am skeptical that we would come close to that. I mean, now I, I know that all it requires is the energy of people choosing to do that, but like, especially in the American, you know, this administration, but you know, like I'm, I'm afraid like that, that we always default to self-interest of corporations. like. I don't know what it takes to make mass change. There would need to be a shift in consciousness, like on a national scale. And actually, having said all that negative stuff I just said, maybe the young people, maybe that'll, maybe they'll be different. You know, when they grow up. I mean, up. look at what I mean. Khalif Browder, may he rest in peace. His life was a sacrifice, and it's because of him taking his own life brought the spotlight on solitary confinement for adolescents and looking at this draconian just fucked up bail system right so, so here's what so yeah. change does happen you know and i mean i always go to you know like look at harriet tubman 
She was a former slave. She was born into slavery. She never knew freedom, never saw it, never experienced it, but she envisioned it in her mind's eye. What could this woman, this one black woman who was born a slave, was told that she was less than human, three-fifths of a woman, and beaten and raped, and she knew and her mother was born into slavery, and her mother's mother was born into slavery. She knew nothing but plantation life. But somewhere in her mind's eye, in her, deep in her spirit, in her African spirit, she saw something, she saw freedom that she had not experienced. Yeah. And she ran towards something that she knew had to exist, right? And came back 300 times, or however many times she came back to bring people to this vision and brought them to freedom. So I say all that to say that if we have the power of our mind and our vision, I mean, the fact that we're not in chains and not on plantations, like, I mean, think about all the slaveholders who were like, I'm like, oh, no, slavery, that's just, because it was like that for 400 years, right? So if you're like, you know, born in the second hundred year of slavery, you're like, this is how it's always been, this right, is the way it's right, always right, going right, to be, right? right? right, right. I can never change, but it did change. Yeah, no. Look at Jim Crow. We can never change, but it did change, right? So that's how I approach prison. That's right. It can change. It that's will right. change. Even though I can't see what it looks like, I know that the possibility is there. I mean, just the fact that you had Bill de Blasio. You had, well, first of all, you had all these grassroots organizations on the ground talking about closed Rikers Island, right? You know, uh, Just Leadership USA was like on the forefront of the campaign to close Rikers Island, right? right. And it was a conversation that if you weren't in those circles, it, you didn't even hear about it. Until Bill de Blasio came out and said, we're going to do a 10-year plan to close Rikers. Now, 10 years, we know, is too long. But the fact that he said, we're going to, yes, we're going to close Rikers. Now, you've got people in their consciousness saying, okay, well, what do we do instead of Rikers Island? Now you have a shift of consciousness. Now you have people reimagining New York City without a Rikers Island. So therein starts the change in our psyche. Sure, sure. So the, with Closing Rikers Island, like the thing I always wonder, because I'm not that deeply informed on this whole debate, is like, is that connected with an idea, not just of reimagining New York without Rikers, but of reimagining what happens to all those guys and Absolutely. gals? Like, so Absolutely. Like, reimagining the bail system. Right. Reimagining, okay, what kind of uh, support services can we have for young people and all people who are incarcerated? What kind of, um, you know, re-entry services? What kind of preventative um, services? What kind of job opportunities? So it's really kind of getting us to think how we can decrease the population, uh, the, the incarcerated population, by refocusing or rechanneling resources back into the community that right. can serve the people so they don't wind up going to jail, which would be a model for the rest of the country. But Indeed. New York is starting. No, and it's in, I think it's important to remember that like that sense of, because I'm coming, right, so you, you talked about like in the middle of slavery times, there were probably people who were like, well, it's been going on forever. You know, it'll, it'll never change. There are a lot of reasons to have that perspective. One might be that you benefit from slavery and don't want it to end, right, if you're a plantation owner. But the other kind, you know, what I'm, where I was coming from a minute ago is sort of like the disappointment in so much of what we see all the time. But in a way, that disappointment is giving in to the intimidation that the institutions and the power structures that exist want to put upon you so that their exi continued existence 
is an inevitability. Like Right, so you feel isolated. Yeah, to say, oh yeah, well that's right, we are gonna be here forever. Right, know? right. Yeah. So 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 isolation creates that debilitating pessimism where you think there's nothing that can happen. But there are so many organizations that are on the ground that need support. And so once those organizations, I think, start saying, hey, there's an organization over there that's doing what I'm doing, and we're doing the same thing, and we can support each other. And so you've got this, like these independent cells yeah. that are now making alliances. Right. And now you have, let's say, some people, whether they're you know celebrities or athletes or just people with affluence, economic affluence, who are saying, oh, wait, you know what? I'm going to support that organization because I like what they're doing in the community with schools, right? So you don't have to deal with the government. Right. So I think that... This administration and this era that we're in is really causing people to lean on each other, right? You know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are organizations on the ground doing the work. They need support. There are people with a lot, a lot of money who may not know that these organizations exist. So now we have to just find a way to create alliances so that these organizations are on the radar of these people that have money that could help support the work that they're already doing. That makes good sense, Lisa. Yeah, you gave me something to think about, actually. I mean, there, there, there's like a, a group called um, Giant Thinking and GMAC and Arches and SOS. These are people who are formerly incarcerated, former gang members. They're on the streets and they're helping young people stay alive and free and using their influence from being in the street and being in right. gangs, and they're helping to make a disruption in young people creating the same cycle. But these are organizations that need to be supported. Like they're coming out to the jails and they're talking to the adolescents. They're going in the streets and they're, you know, doing conflict resolution uh, whenever there's some some act of violence so that there's not a retaliation. But we don't hear about these organizations. They need support. They I, need money. I like your point about them bonding together because I think that the larger the scale of the network, the more amplified their voices can be. You Absolutely. Know? Obviously, it takes money to amplify, but with social media and everything, like if they, you know, if there's if there's a unified sense of purpose, then that message can get out there better. I mean, it's a two-way street, right? I mean, Absolutely. We should go looking for them, and they should they should bond together and speak. Absolutely. I remember watching this, this documentary a couple years ago called The Interrupters, and The Interrupters was about a group of young, or I'd say, you know, my age, you know, in their 30s, you know, 40s, ex-gang members and formerly incarcerated people in Chicago. Okay. And, and we hear about, you know, just the, the violence in Chicago, which is outrageous. And you had these group of people, they were called the interrupters, and whenever there was an act of gun violence, or even before, like, they, because they, they were on the ground, so they could hear, you know, when there was something about to pop off, right? Because right? Right. the ear was to the ground. So they would go and they would do conflict resolution with gang members. Before the thing happened. Before the yeah, thing right. happened. Yeah. Why? Th this is an organization, this is a group of people that need to be funded. They need support. They need, they need to be duplicated, right. Right? right? But we don't hear about them. We just hear about the numbers in Chicago. What about the people on the ground who are in the trenches? You know, making a difference. Maybe, you know, might feel like they're stabbing an elephant with a toothpick, but they're, they're still making a difference. I'm always skeptical of, like, these sort of, like, 
Silicon Valley driven platforms or whatever. It doesn't have to come from Silicon Valley, but it probably needs some smart person to organize a platform that connects, you know, that like gathers the stories, gathers the best practices, interconnects the organizations so that the voice can be amplified, you know, like so that things can be scaled. Like while we're scaling up Uber and right. Facebook and everything else, right. like we should also be scaling these kinds of activities, yeah. like so that they can have some real influence, you know, some a broader, broader bigger influence. influence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying they're not making a difference, but so that their difference that they make can be amplified a hundred times. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Amen. Amen. <laughs> um, that was that was wonderful. I really, really enjoyed that conversation, uh, Lisa, and I think that this is really valuable stuff for the audience to hear. Thank you so much for being on Think Again. Thank you for having me. And Lisa Jesse Peterson's book, once again, is All Day, A Year of Love and Survival, Teaching Incarcerated Kids at Rikers Island. I really enjoyed it. I wrote a review on Amazon. That's, you did? That's I didn't I read like it. it. I got to go see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope you like it. But it can't be as much as I like this book. It was wonderful. Um, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. That wraps up another episode of Think Again. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, if you're new to the show, welcome. If you've been with us for a while, I'm so grateful that you're listening uh, every week or close to it. And um, feel free to drop me a line at jason at bigthink.com. I love to hear from people who are listening, where you're listening, how you're listening, what something in the show made you think of. Um, anything people have sent me art I, I i love to get that inspired by the show and uh just a reminder to please subscribe uh wherever you're listening itunes google play stitcher podcatcher or is podcatcher even a thing i don't think so but wherever you're listening please subscribe so that you can get the show every week and uh, we'll be back next week with another interesting conversation i hope you can join us